Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. All right, people. We have a fun topic today. We're going to be attacking another one of the sacred cows of churchianity. And what is it? Well, do not bear false witness. That's a problem already. That's the way probably everybody has heard that commandment stated. Is that what it says? Well, it does say that. Is that all it says? No. There's another part to it. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of Christians will take that full statement and just say, well, yes, of course, that just is, you know, a furtherance of the same generality. You say just as much if you simply say, do not bear false witness. Oh, really? Do you? And I get it, you know, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. In other words, don't lie to other people. Is that really what it means? Well, let's take a look at something else in Scripture that we get not in the Old Testament, but actually in the New Testament. Jesus Christ himself. He tells us the story of the shrewd manager. Now, the shrewd manager, and not a lot of people like to talk about this one, I think because it does have this bit of uh, difficulty, which I'll be getting into in a little bit. But the story of the shrewd manager is the story of a man who serves his master as a manager of his affairs. The master is about to fire him, tells him, you know, basically start packing up your stuff, you're about to go. So what does the manager do? Well, he thinks to himself, well, I'm not really going to have uh, any room and board once I'm out. A lot of times in those days, you know, you would uh, be provided for not just income-wise, but in home and board and so on by your master if you were serving such a person. Anyways, uh, if I remember accurately, don't <laughs> I'm not certain on that, but I'm pretty sure that's the case, or was the case. Anyways, so he's like, yeah, I'm going to basically be losing my um, homestead, etc., and I'm too proud to beg, so what can I do? Well, as the manager of his manager of his master's affairs, he had every right to deal with the debts that other people had towards his master. Now, this is a little bit of an extra detail that I'm kind of giving, and I think it's accurate, but uh, again, you know, it would merit further research. But this is, you know, to the best of my knowledge, right? Anyway, so he would have, you know, authority over the affairs that other people had with his master. So he goes to those people who have debts to his master and tells them to reduce that debt. He doesn't explain, you know, that he's about to get fired. He doesn't explain any of that stuff. And really what he's doing overall is stealing from his master in the future. Why? Because those debtors, while they still had a debt, they had a lesser debt. In other words, the master wasn't going to be getting back everything that he had expected. Now, Jesus does something here that he does in a lot of his parables. He takes a story that was often told in Israel at that time, Another example of this, by the way, is the story of the prodigal son. And right when he gets to the end of it, he flips the narrative. Well, he does that here, too. So after the master finds out what this shrewd manager had done in essentially, again, stealing from his future income, he tells him, well done, 
he praises him for what he had done. And then Jesus adds this anecdote at the end, his own, his own um, specific words, that the children of the light, in other words, those who wish to do good, don't get this, while the children of the world do. In other words, and he points out, using unrighteous mammon, that is using money, to gain favor with the world. Jesus essentially is telling his people, his followers, to be shrewd. And what does that include? Deception. Did those debtors actually owe the master that much? That much less? Well, you could say technically because the manager still had the authority to do so. Yes, but it was not with the master's okay to do so. Until he was fired, he still essentially might might have had that actual authority. On those details, I'm a little fuzzy. I'm not certain. But there is deception there. There is a sleight of hand. There is changing things without permission to do so. So Jesus is telling his people, you should be shrewd in this way. Now, you could call that lying. You could call that deception. You might just settle with calling it shrewdness. But there's a lot of other parts of the Bible that make it very difficult, in my opinion, to hold to this hard line, just don't lie, just don't lie, just don't lie, just don't lie. Again, kind of referring back to what Jesus said, the children of light don't get this. And I'm not saying because they're not willing to lie. I'm saying because they're not even willing to deceive, not even willing to use any kind of sleight of hand or take an advantage when they basically need to in order to survive, in order to win their way. In a manner of speaking, to act in the world's way for survival, for advantage, for resources. The world's really good at doing that. Christians, children of, quote, the light, not so much. So what are those other scriptures I brought up? or was referring to. Several times in the Bible, we're given examples of similar sorts of deception and other kinds of sin that God specifically comments on. Or we have the comment, for example, God was not pleased with what this person did. Some of you already know the one I'm thinking of when I say that because that refers specifically to David. David, as we know, many of us, later on in his rulers, in his ruling, um, as king, took the wife of another, Bathsheba, had sex with her, she became pregnant, he had the husband killed in war, and then of course we get the comment, God was not pleased with what he did. Now, obviously there's a lot more than just deception going on here, there's a lot worse, essentially. But we do get the comment, God did not approve. And this is the part that I'm really focused on. And David, of course, repented, and that baby did die, by the way. The second child of David and Bathsheba was Solomon, who became the next king. But anyway, those details aside, there are other times when some sort of deception or slight is used in a particular way. How about a New Testament example? Ananias and Sapphira. In the early times of the church, when it was brand new, in the book of Acts that this is told, 
the Christians, the early Christians, who weren't even called Christians at that time, by the way, they were called the followers of the way. Of course, in Greek and Aramaic. But anyway, um, the people of the church, the Christians, we'll just call them, were selling their land and giving the proceeds to the church. So Ananias and Sapphira decide, okay, we want to get that same clout, essentially. This is more or less what I would assume, given the narrative of the story, was kind of going through their minds. They wanted to get the same kind of clout, the praise of being one of those, uh, you know, the same sort of person who gives their money to the church to give to the poor. But, of course, most of the people were taking all of the proceeds of their sold land and giving it to the church. They weren't willing to go quite that far, but they still wanted the clout, as far as I interpret this. So they sold the land, kept half of the money, and gave the other half while saying that it was the full amount. Now that's just, obviously, plain old deception. But it's deception directly to the church, which was really close to the Spirit of God at that time. And it's in front of the one of the very apostles' feet, one of the twelve, or eleven at this time. So Ananias, the husband, Ananias, the husband, comes in, brings the half money, calling it whole, and the Spirit of God tells the apostle, I think it was Peter, that this is a ruse. And in a few moments, Ananias is Ananias is dead. They finish burying him. Sapphira shows up. She gives the same lie. She dies. And I, if memory serves, it's also pointed out that had they not tried to deceive God, that is the Holy Spirit, and simply said, this is half of what we got, you had every right to keep the other half to yourself. Just don't lie about it in front of God. So very clearly, that is an example of God disapproving of a ruse, disapproving of deception. You might say, oh, it's because they were disobeying the commandment. Not so fast. In my opinion, it is not about the deception. It is about the direction, the heart behind the deception. Who is being deceived? So, other examples of scripture, particularly in Genesis and Exodus, are rife, full of individuals who deceived other people. You can't deceive God. And that's why the Ananias and Sapphira story is pretty poignant. But you have people deceiving other people, and what's God's comment on it? Well, no direct comment, but those people are blessed. Who am I talking about? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Rahab. I'll go through them fairly quickly, because you'll get the point quickly, I assume. Ananias, or sorry, <laughs> Ananias. Abraham continuously, as he was going on his journey to Canaan, told the people of various lands and cities that Sarah, or Sarai at the time, was in fact his sister. And it specifically points out that he was doing this, and by the way, this was half true, because she was the daughter, I believe, of his mother, but not of his father. Um, anyway... <laughs> biological implications of that aside, right? Um, 
and they might have been very different back then because they were much closer to the beginning. That's kind of my theory on it. But again, that aside, um, so he tells the people essentially a half lie, and he says it because, as the scripture narrates it, she was extremely beautiful to behold, Sarah this is, and he didn't want to be essentially killed by the people of the town so that they could have Sarah for themselves. So, several times, I think it's two or three times, so it's not several, I suppose, but a couple to a few times, he tells not just the people of the city, but the rulers of that city, that, oh, this is my sister. And in both, if not all cases, that ruler is, in fact, the one who takes Sarah into his home, whether it be for he himself or his son, I think, in another case. And then God reveals to that ruler that, no, this is Abraham's wife. Now, clear deception, right? Again, it's a half lie, yes, but it's still deception. And what does God do to Abraham for oh, lying? He blesses him. Well, and I don't know about directly, but in both cases, Egypt is one, and I can't remember the other place or city. Abraham ends up getting stuff, lots of stuff, as a matter of fact, as a result of this infraction. God defends Sarah, saying that they not dare take this married woman of Abraham and essentially violate her. And in recompense for their almost infraction against Abraham, they give him a bunch of stuff. There is no recorded reprimand from God to Abraham. Now fast forward to Isaac. There's just one instance where he does exactly the same thing. And this, Rachel, if I'm remembering correct, no, 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 it's Rebecca. Rebecca is not at all his, direct, his uh, sister even half. He gives the same lie, and there's no reprimand from God. It doesn't say God disapproved of what he did. And there are other similar instances, such as the children of Jacob, who did do deception, and it's the children of the children of Jacob. And, that it, and yeah, they did essentially deceive or hold back on things that they ought to have given, and in some such cases, those men are killed for it by God. It says it specifically, but not so with Abraham or Isaac. And then you take Jacob. Holy crap. He deceives his brother. Well, not, not so much, but he essentially strong arms his brother. He deceives his father directly, saying, I'm Esau rather than Jacob, to get the blessing of Isaac. He'd already got the birthright through his trickery with Esau, essentially. And then he continues to deceive and slight and, dis and switch things around, although not in an entirely disingenuous way, with Laban, the father of his two wives, who he eventually got by serving Laban. And God keeps blessing Jacob. He keeps getting his way. And as he's with Laban, working for his, working essentially to get his two wives, but also for pay, he keeps getting more and more and more. There is even a point at which Jacob claims that Laban wouldn't even have the riches and wealth he has if it wasn't for him that is Jacob. 
As far as we can tell, the comment from God for all of this deception and trickery that he engages in is that Jacob keeps winning. He keeps getting his way. He keeps getting stuff and stuff and stuff. And even when God comes along and Jacob is wrestling with him, he names him Israel. And yes, he does get the limp in the limp in the leg as a result of that. But he gives them the name Israel, he who wrestles with God. And he specifically points out, he who you have wrestled with God and succeeded. Jacob keeps saying to this man, who is essentially a form of God, I'm not going to let go of you until you bless me. And he does. Jacob kept wrestling for the advantage, kept wrestling for the blessing. In fact, I think that this story of him wrestling with the man, who is apparently some form of God, is really just a retelling of what he had already been doing for years. He kept on wrestling his way and tricking his way and deceiving his way to get his own advantage. And there is no record that God reprimands him for this behavior. And by the way, Abraham, with his deception and all, and granted, he did a lot of very good things and was faithful and obedient and listened to God and had a good relationship with God. It specifically points out in Scripture that Abraham followed God's statutes and commandments and laws. Now, yes, we don't have the Ten Commandments at that point, but it's very specific in giving all four, three or four names, his commandments, his words, his laws, his rules. I can't remember exactly all the words. You can look it up. Finally, we have Rahab. Rahab was the prostitute who lived at the wall of Jericho. The spies from Israel come in. Jericho is already well warned that uh, Israel is coming. So they want to know if they're being spied on. Rahab agrees to essentially be spared when the Israelites come. And the exchange is that she, she won't give away their secret. She'll hide the spies and then not give away the secret to her own city, her own people. She deceives her own people. And not only does she survive and her whole family, she is part of the very genealogy of Jesus himself. She deceived her very own people. So, having all of this in mind, can we really defend the idea that we must never deceive others? God is looking at these people who had deceived others, deceived other people. Yes, he doesn't like it very much when you try to deceive him. Can't do it anyway. He knows when you try. Kind of like a good father seeing his son or daughter trying to say, no, I didn't take the candy, and he knows very well they did. Can't deceive God, but when we deceive other people, or when these people deceived other people, yes, God doesn't necessarily praise them for it, but all of these people were blessed. Can we really sustain that do not bear false witness against your neighbor just means don't lie? Now, I'm not suggesting that lying is a good thing. The Bible is specific on this point as well. In the following 
books after the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, sorry, it does point out, don't lie. (laughs) Um, In my opinion, this is more about being a habitual liar, being somebody who lives a lifestyle of lying, kind of like a drunkard versus somebody who just occasionally drinks, occasionally has some wine, occasionally has some beer. In fact, the Bible, as far as the alcohol drinking uh, parallel goes, in my opinion, um, God, uh, the Bible specifically specifically praises having a drink every once in a while, a drink in celebration, a drink to relax. A drink was even given as instruction to Timothy by the Apostle Paul to relax your stomach. Drink some wine for your stomach. So, and we also have, I believe, a psalm or a proverb that talks about how lying lips are a horrible thing, maybe even hated by God. I can't remember how that one goes. But it's a very different thing to use a, a sleight of hand, a deception, a singular lie to get an advantage, as opposed to being a continuously deceptive person. Even Jacob didn't do that. Jacob occasionally deceived, yes, occasionally kind of pulled the rug out from under other people. And he used weird tactics and yet for even breeding sheep, and it somehow went exactly the way he wanted, and in that way took away the income, so to speak, of Laban gaining more income for himself, which of course at those times had more to do with your livestock rather than your gold. Anyway, so... And I want to point out, of course, you know, this is just my opinion. This is something that I've thought a great deal about. And I'm offering it not to say, oh, the church is wrong and I am right. That's not the point. I'm bringing this up just to open minds. My own has been opened by thinking about this. I'm sharing this not to try to challenge the interpretation as it is popularly known of this of this one of the Ten Commandments. I'm saying, hey, what if? And I haven't really had any good challenges to it so far. So. What does do not bear false witness against your neighbor actually mean if it doesn't mean just don't lie? Plain and simple, flat, right? Well, to witness is to see a series of events, and it doesn't have to be in a court, but very often we would associate it with saying in court what you have seen. Right? What you witness, what you were a part of, you bear witness. So you are giving essentially a testimony, right? And again, this doesn't just have to be in court. You can give a testimony. We as Christians should know this very well. Give your testimony by the word of your testimony. You talk about what you have seen and heard. You talk about what you have experienced. This is a witness, right? So do not bear false witness. Do not give incorrect, false, falsified testimony against your neighbor. That's what it actually says. So what would it be to give false testimony against your neighbor? Well, there's actually two ways in which you can do this. One is the more obvious. You tarnish the reputation of a good person. In other words, you're saying that I have borne witness, I have seen and experienced the horribleness of X person when X person is actually a very good, genuine, 
at high character individual. This one I have personal experience with. I have had some people in my life, one in particular, and of course I won't get into specifics, but tried to help him out, tried to give him a shot, and not only did he not take the chance, take my opportunity, rather he tried to lord himself over my entire circle, he then went away and has not only, did not only at that time begin saying that I'm a dishonest and bad per, bad Christian, not a Christian, bad person, blah, 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 blah. But he's continued to do that to this day. And I, I honestly pity the guy for it. And that's something, in my opinion, that all of us will encounter at some point, maybe not at that extreme, but we will encounter at some point if we really do try to give people however, whatever walk, their walk of life a good shot in life. Some people will choose to resent you for it. Anyways, that is an example of character assassination. In this sense, I think it draws a very good parallel with the other commandment to not murder. What do I mean by that? Well, when you murder somebody, you unjustly take away their life. This is, uh, And notice my wording there, this does not include killing, right? Killing in the sense of self-defense or war, etc., is not murder. Look in the book of Deuteronomy, I believe it is, and it specifically distinguishes between a killing that was done accidentally and a killing that was done on purpose. There's totally different laws, totally different results from either or. These are important things to keep in mind. So yes, the commandment is don't murder. So yes, when you murder, you end another person's physical life. However, when you bear false witness against your neighbor, when you assassinate the character of a good person, what you are at least attempting to do is to kill their reputation. You're not killing their body, yes, but in a sense, you could be killing their soul. You're taking away their opportunity, perhaps, to make money. Perhaps you're taking away their opportunity to have quality relationships, or at least, again, you're attempting to do it. It is a different form of murder. So, I said that there are two kinds of bearing false witness against your neighbor. What is the second? Well, the second is, of course, just the opposite. What if you take a bad person and tell everybody that they are, in fact, very good? I have borne witness to the fact I bear testimony that this person is upstanding and a good citizen and generous and kind and so on. Well... Whose interest is that really serving? Your own, of course. Why? We all know that bad people, if you actually tell the truth about them, they're going to abuse you. They're going to yell at you. They're going to try to make life hell for you. That's what makes them bad. It's one of the reasons why they are bad, right? We all know this. And we know that you can't say anything bad about an actually bad person for the reasons I just mentioned. So... Many of us give in to that pressure. We don't want the reprimand. We don't want the abuse. We don't want the backlash. When we tell false testimony about a bad person, we're looking out for ourselves. 
And what does that do to the people who listen to us talking about how good and magnanimous a person this is? Well, they may go into business with this person or get a relationship with this person of some kind and end up being abused, end up being swindled. And you say, oh, Adam, but wait a second. It says against your neighbor. How is talking good about a bad person against that person? Well, do you want that person's circumstantial good or moral good? In other words, do you want that bad person to reform? Do you want them to become a better person? Well, if all you ever do is give them exactly what they want, what reason do they have to repent? You say, oh, oh, but if we love other people, if we are kind to them, they will see the light and they will want to repent. No! No, they won't. Bad people, if they ha have already given in to those kinds of motives, if they're serving money, if they're serving survival, if they're serving clout and position in life, and that's what they really want, if you give that to them, why do they have any reason to regret their actions? If you continue to tell good about bad people, if you bear false testimony, you are being against a bad person for bearing false testimony about them. Because you are not looking to their eternal good. You are not looking to their salvation. You're not looking to their repentance. You're giving them exactly what they want. You're giving in to the pressure, once again, selfishly, because you don't want that backlash, the pressure of their abuse towards you. So, those are my thoughts on what the commandment is, really, what it really means to not bear false witness against your neighbor, and what it, how it really connects with the ideas of shrewdness. And again, these are just thoughts that I wanted to present to my audience and get people thinking, get people talking. I hope it's proved interesting, and I know I'll be continuing to think about it myself. Signing off for now. Have a great day.